Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely praise men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should speak to each person. As to all of my affairs, Tychius, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings also in Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed in the ministry which you have received, in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray that grace would be with us, that we would live our lives in light of your grace, in the light of your mercy, in the light of your sacrifice on Calvary's cross, in the light of the fact that you walked out of that tomb, Lord, and they're at the right hand of the Father. Lord, may we live our lives with that truth ever before us. Lord, if there are any here that don't know you, I pray that the questions that they still have would be answered soon. I pray that they would reach out to somebody who can help them find those answers and that you would work in their heart. Lord, for there's no more important decision than the decision to accept your gift freely given out of your love for us. Lord, and then to walk in your ways. I pray that as we study your word this morning, it draws us closer to you. That it transforms our minds to be the mind of Christ that it transforms our thoughts to be God-like and Christ-like. 
that it transforms our actions because we know in their standing on the truth. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting today. I just lift them up to you. I pray that you would give them comfort and wisdom and strength. Lord, I pray for those who are rejoicing today. I thank you for them. I thank you for the wonderful things going on in their life. And I pray that in that, they would never forget you. Lord, that whether we are in good times or bad times, we would live for you, that we would stay focused on you. Teach us this morning with your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Colossians, since it's been so long since we've been there, I just want to set the background on the, on the whole book um, really quickly, and then we'll get into this last section. Right now we're talking about relationships. This last section that we, that we started uh, at 312, uh, two sermons ago is about relationships and you'll see that this morning's is, is entitled relationships 301 because this is the third time we're, we're talking about relationships as we move through this so the book of Colossians is is fantastic because it has a lot of stuff about the person and work of Jesus Christ okay who God is who Jesus is what he did for us who he made us in him and it, and it does that and then it gives us some practical stuff hey so because of this you ought to do this and then he goes back and he says, oh yeah, remember, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did for you. This is who he made you in him. And because of that, you want to do this. Oh, and remember, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And because of that, you want to do this. And we're in a, you want to do this section this morning. And when I say that ought, I, I'm really softening that a little bit. Because it's not you ought to do this, do this. Okay? Do this. And we started talking about relationships in 3.12. As, as Paul's telling us, uh, in light of, of everything about God and Christ, this is how you ought to relate to one another. He had just gotten done saying, get rid of the old stuff, the old you. Put on the new you. And this is how we relate to one another. And Colossians 3.12-17 is important enough for us to remember because it un, under, it's the foundation. It undergirds everything else that he's going to talk about relationships. So I'm going to read that real quick. 3.12, it says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So that's kind of the, the basis that Paul lays for foundations. And then he goes in, and that's what we talked about in, the first, in Relationships 101. And in the Relationships 201, we went, we went through two of the three primary relationships, familial relationships that he talks about. Okay, remember, back then, slaves were mostly part of the family. Okay, it's not slavery like we think of American slavery. slavery. It was the slaves were part of the family, part, part of the household. And Paul goes through wives, and he says, hey, because you, you've got to have your, your heart uh, you've got to be holy because you're chosen of God. You've got to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You've got to bear with one another, forgive one another. And then he gives supplemental instructions for three relationships. Husbands, wives, parents, kids, and master slaves. 
And you could go back and listen to the last ones about the wives and the husbands and the children and the fathers. This morning we're going to talk about servants and masters, slaves and masters. But we can't forget that undergirding of the relationships, the heart that we have to put on because of what Jesus has done for us. We also can't forget that these are imperatives. These are not suggestions. This is you do this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. They're imperatives. They're imperatives. They're not optional. It's what God has told us to do. And if we don't do what God has told us to do, what are we doing? We're sinning. Okay, and we need to repent of that. Change our mind about it and not do it anymore. These are imperatives. These are things that we have to do, not things that we maybe should do if we feel like it. Okay, they're things that we have to do. So let's get in. This first part's going to be really easy, right? Because basically verses 20 through, uh, 322 through 41 boil down to this. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves fairly. So go forth and do that. Treat your slaves fairly. And if you are a slave, obey your masters. Done. Need to say anything else? How many of you own slaves? How many of you are a slave? Slave to sin, maybe. Okay. No longer slaves to sin. Does this even apply to us? Why are we even talking about it? Yeah, it applies to us. But it, we have to put it in our 21st century context. Okay? We're not slaves. We're not slave owners. But your employees or employers, you might be a supervisor or a subordinate or both. Most people are both. Very few people are at the very top and very few people are at the very bottom. So that's our 21st century context. So as we go through this, I'm going to talk about subordinates and supervisors. Or I may talk about um, uh, employees and employers as opposed to slaves and servants. So slaves, i.e. employees, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Obey them in some things? No, obey them in all things. Of course, we've got to remember this is the Christian context, so Paul's not saying if your employer tells you to break the law that you should do that. Okay? Anytime your employer or your supervisor tells you to do something that's immoral, that's against God's character, we are called to disobey that. But within the Christian context, slaves, employees, in all things, obey your masters. Obey, obey your employers. Obey your supervisors. Why? Because whatever you do, work heartily is for working for the Lord. You should look at it as working for God, like Jesus asked you to do it. If Jesus asked you to do something, I bet you're going to do it. What Paul's telling us is if your employer, if your supervisor tells you to do something, asks you to do something, tells you to do something, you ought to do it. And not just with eye service, not just uh, this eye service is this, hey, I'm going to act like I'm doing it, and as soon as he turns his back, I'm going to do what I want to do. Not like that. And not to look good for myself. I'm not doing it to promote myself, although that will happen, but that's not the motivation. The motivation is because I'm working as if I'm working for the Lord. It's like the instruction came from Jesus, so I'm going to do it. 
And I know, verse 24, that from the Lord, I get the reward. I get the reward. Because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So in our jobs, in our workplaces, we listen to our supervisors. We listen to our employers. We obey them. We do what they've asked us to do. That's hard. That's hard. I mean, it's easy sometimes. If I've got a great boss, and I've had good bosses, and I've had horrible bosses, if I've got a great boss, it's easy. It's easy. But if I've got a boss that I think is unreasonable, and I've got one particular one in my mind right now, and I bet, <laughs> I bet if you ask my wife, she would have the exact same boss. She'd have the exact same name in her mind right now. And I tell you, I struggled with this. It was hard. And I failed at it sometimes. But God has called us to do it. Me failing in that was sin. And how do we know? Well, Steve, you're, you're pulling a lot out of that. Well, let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is one of the parallel passages of this. 1 Peter 2. And, you know, Paul gives us the basic instructions, but Peter punch, punches us in the stomach with them and says, you've got to do this. This is not conditional. He's not saying if your master is reasonable, then obey him. He's not saying, wives, if your husband is a good husband, then submit to him. He's not saying, husbands, if your wife is submitting to you, then love her. No, they are unconditional commands for each side, no matter what the other side is doing for each side of the relationship. 2 Peter 2, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then he's going to punch you in the gut. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Ouch i got to listen to the bad boss, too. It's a whole lot more fun to say, yes, sir, and then go into the next room and start complaining about him and figuring out how you can subvert him. That's sin, folks. We ought not to do that. As Christians, we should be model employees, model subordinates. Peter tells us, he goes on and he tells us that Christ, the reason for this principle is because of what christ suffered he says for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward god a man's bear, bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience but if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it this finds favor with god for you have been called for this purpose and then he gives us the reason. He says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ suffered unjustly. As Christians, we've got to do what God tells us to do, even if it causes us to suffer unjustly. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. We are to submit to our supervisors regardless. 
And I know we covered it last time, but lest you have in your mind this whole husband-wife thing, he goes on, 2 Peter uh, goes on in 3.1 and says, in the same way. So in the same way as, as servants have to still submit to an unreasonable master, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your husbands. I.e., even if they're unreasonable. Hey, husbands, we don't get off the hook. Because in verse 7, he says, you husbands, likewise. So just in that same manner, likewise. Live with your wives. It's not conditional. It's not optional. This is what God has told us to do in our relationships. Masters. So supervisors. Commanders. Employers. Grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So as subordinates, we're supposed to obey. As supervisors, we've got to be fair. We've got to be just. We don't treat people like they're beneath us just because we have a position over them. Because remember, folks, these are not worth roles that, that, that Paul is talking about here either in the husband's wives, the, the children, parents, or the employer-employee, or in this case, master-slaves. It's not about your worth. Other places in Scripture tell us that we're all worth the same in Christ Jesus. Men, women, slaves, master, we're all of equal worth in Christ Jesus. These are functional dis distinctions, roles, because the Creator has designed our relationships to work a certain way. And we ought to follow the Creator's design. So He has designed it to work this way, and it works well when it's done this way. It's not about the worth, it's just about the role. The subordinate's role is to follow. The leader's role is to lead justly and fairly. And if you do that, I mean, I read that and I go, okay, if I was in a work situation where the subordinates did what they were told and did it well, like they were working for God, and the supervisors were just and fair who doesn't want to work there i want to work there that sounds great so if both people will follow it it works well and guess what even if you're working for somebody who's not a christian you can't expect them to follow that you may win them over by the way you behave you behave like you belong to christ no matter what they're doing you behave i need to behave like i belong to christ so that's what he's talking about, servants and masters. Then he transitions a little bit here in 4.2. We're kind of getting out of relationships, but it's a slow transition out of relationships because he talks about prayer, and prayer is our relationship with God. Okay. Then he talks about how we relate to outsiders, to unbelievers, and that's our relationship with unbelievers. So we can still remember 12, 3, 12 through 17, as we get into this he says devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving devote yourself to prayer think of things that you are devoted to is prayer one of them Don't you hate it when people ask you how your prayer life is oh it's great i spent at least 30 seconds in prayer yesterday so i think i'm think i'm pretty good devote yourselves to prayer much like in 316 he said let the word of christ dwell richly within you and we talked about dwelling with you 
The Word of God can't be a part-time visitor. It's got to live with you. And we're supposed to devote ourselves to prayer. In Thessalonians, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Okay, and we've talked about that before. That doesn't mean that I walk around with my head bowed mumbling all the time bumping into stuff because I'm in prayer. No, it's this attitude of I'm living my entire life in communication with the Father. That person cuts you off in traffic and instead of saying a first word underneath your breath, you're in communication with your Father. Thank you, Lord. It might be thank you that that person didn't hit me. But it's thank you. It's a constantly, I'm devoted to prayer. Devoting myself to it. It's not something that I just do occasionally. Devoted to prayer. Keeping alert in it. If you're looking at the NIV, it says being watchful. And that makes me think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when He takes Peter, James, and John aside and He says, pray with Me. And He goes out and just pours His heart out to the Father. And Peter, James, and John are going, yeah! And they're just pouring their hearts out to the Father too, right? Now, what are they doing? I think I'll get a little shut-eye. This is a long night. I may need that shut-eye. And Jesus comes back and says, are you asleep? Be watchful. Pray with me. So being watchful in prayer. We ought to be keeping alert in prayer. It keeps our our Christian lives alert. Alert to the dangers, to the temptations if we stay in communication with our Father. Alert to the people that need us to talk with them, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Alert to those who need our support. We have to have that communication with the Father. Stay alert in it. Speaking in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus spends His time pouring out His heart and communicating with the Father. And what's the result? How does he deal with being arrested? Say pretty peacefully. Because he knows he is firmly in God's will. Because he's prayed about it. How do the disciples who've been sleeping instead of praying deal with the arrest? We're out. We're leaving. Because they're not sure what's going on. Because they haven't been in prayer. They are not confident that they are firmly in God's will. We've got to be devoted to prayer. Keeping alert with it in an attitude of thanksgiving. So that we know that we're in God's will. And then three just really chastises me about every time I read it. Because I don't know about you, but when you know somebody tells me, hey, I'm going through a hard time, My prayer is generally, Lord, deliver them from that hard time. And then I go back and read passages like Colossians 4.3. And it says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Does Paul ask that you pray that he would get out of prison? No, he doesn't. What does he ask for? He asks for opportunities to witness to folk in prison. He doesn't say, pray me out of this situation. He says, pray 
that I would be effective for God in this situation. Man, I think that's instructive for us, and that's hard. Because we want to. We don't feel compassionate. If somebody tells you, you know, I, I'm going through a really hard time, we don't feel compassionate if we say, well, I hope you find a way to serve God in that hard time. It just doesn't make us feel like we're really getting in touch with them. So we want to say, well, I'm going to pray you out of that. Well, maybe God put them there so that they would have the opportunity to speak to somebody that they need to speak to and they wouldn't have done it otherwise. One writer said, prayer is not to persuade God to do something that he didn't intend to do. Prayer is to get you and me in line with the program of God. Take a break there. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what Paul has done. He has prayed, so he's in line with God's program. He's not trying to get God to check off, hey God, this is what I want, 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 and I would really appreciate it if you would check all those boxes. Prayer is, God, what do you want? And I want to be in line with what you want, Father. This writer says, he goes on and he says, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. We can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not to get out of the time of need, but to help in time of need. William Barclay, many of you may know him, said, when we pray for ourselves and for others, we should not ask for release from any task, but rather for strength to complete the task which has been given to us to do. Prayer should always be for power and seldom for release. Conquest, not release, must be the keynote of the Christian life. And I think that's what Paul's showing us here by example. Don't pray that I would get out of prison, but pray that I would be an effective minister for God in prison. What are you going through today that instead of trying to get out of it, we could try to be effective ministers for God? And it instructs me almost every time I read it. And wouldn't it be nice to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ are praying that we be effective ministers for Christ no matter what we're going through? no matter what we're going through. I think of Jana's father when he died of cancer. <clears throat> I don't know, but I think the vast majority of that cancer ward was not believers when he got there and was believers when he died. Because of the way he went through that situation. Not perfectly, but well very well. I pray that I have the strength to do the same thing through the difficulties in my life. Then he goes straight on. He says he, gets, he goes away from prayer and when he says, in order that I may make clear in the way I ought to speak, and then he talks about our speech. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, towards unbelievers. Okay? Making the most of the, of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were, with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And I get a few things out of this as far as witnessing to people, evangelizing. I, how many of you have ever taken an evangelism class? Just by kind of show of hands. Okay. How many of you have taken more than one evangelism class? Okay. I'm there. I tell you what, every time I get out of those, I, I come out of them, I go, man, I really need to take an evangelism class because I need to get better at this witnessing thing. And then I come out of that, and I'm worse. 
Why am I worse? Because now I'm trying to remember this method that this person has given me. God, I gotta remember the 16 steps and now I can't talk to the person because I'm nervous and I can't remember the steps. And I just, ugh. And then I read something like this out of Paul and I go, thank you. Thank you, God. Because you may take a class on how Billy Graham did it. You may take a cat class on how Richard Moyer did it. But you're not them. They've been gifted with the gift of evangelism. God has made them specifically for that and their personality. So their system works great for them. You may struggle with it, and that's okay. What we find here from Paul is he just says, conduct yourself with wisdom. So how do we get wisdom, James says? If we don't have it, we ask for it. Hey, it goes back to that prayer thing. Okay, Wisdom towards outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace. Our speech should be gracious. Peter says elsewhere that it should be gentle and in love. Okay, We have to speak the truth, folks, but we've got to do it in a way that we're not the one that causes offense. If the truth causes offense, that's okay. We say that in Paul's life. We see that throughout the New Testament. We saw it in Christ. The truth caused offense. But Paul doesn't cause offense. We shouldn't cause offense. If we're talking to somebody, we ought to do it in a way that it is graceful. And he says, seasoned as it were with salt. Salt makes things taste good. So it should be tasteful to people. They should never be offended by the way we present the truth to them. If they get offended by the truth, God's working on them. Okay? And that's good. We have to speak the truth, but we ought to do it in a graceful way that is palatable to them. We don't change the truth, but the way we present it needs to be palatable. And then it should be individual. So we should know how to respond to each person. There doesn't have to be a formula. Use your wisdom. Use the Spirit that's talking to you as you're doing that. Say a little prayer. Be in that constant prayer. And let God guide you to talk to each individual person as opposed to trying to remember an eight-step process or a five-step process for evangelism. Just be yourself. God made you you. Use your strengths. Use the way you are to reach other people. But we are commanded to reach them. Okay? So if you are the silent type... You have to be un-you just a little bit to talk to people, okay? You are commanded to talk to them. You can't continue to be silent. I think Chris just went back to get Scott. Perfect timing. Okay. Then he gets to the last part. I'm not going to read it again, but 7 through 18. And I just like this. He, this, is, this is part of a pretty much all Paul's letters where he, he gives greetings and things of that nature. And I, I like them. It's often easy just to skip through them. But I like them because it reminds me that this is a real letter to real people living real lives. This is not an academic exercise that somebody wrote, an academic paper or anything. That's, this is a letter, a personal letter that Paul wrote to real people living real lives. Okay? If you go get Scott, Chris, thank you. And I just want to pull out a couple of nuggets here, things that, that, that we learn. One, we learn that encouragement is important in, the Christian, in a Christian ministry in 4.8 and in 4.11. We learn that Onesimus, who if you remember, Onesimus is the, 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 the runaway slave from Philemon that comes to Christ. And in the book of Philemon, we learn about that story. Well, here we learn that Onesimus was from Colossae. Okay? And we learn that in 4.9. And also uh, um, 4.17 when it mentions uh, Arch Arch Archippus, who is also mentioned in the book of Philemon. So we, we learn that he's 
from Colossae. And it's just neat the way that the, the Scripture ties together. We learn that Paul's in prison, obviously. We learn that John Mark, who we heard uh, before in Acts, as we've been going through Acts, we saw that, that, that John Mark uh, abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Uh, so Paul was not real pleased with him. That relationship has been restored. And, uh, and Paul counts him among those who are, are useful and encouraging and helping him in his ministry uh, here in, in Colossians. Um, we learn that, this, that, that many of Paul's letters, including this one, was cyclical. In other words, read it in your church and then pass it on to the next church. We also learn, I think, that not all Paul's writings were inspired. Not all Paul's writings are part of the canon because it mentions a letter from Laodicea that we don't have, evidently. Now, there are some people who think that it's the letter to the Ephesians, but there's really no evidence of that anywhere. Uh, and we know from 1, Corinthians, or for, yeah, from 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote another letter. Um, sorry, we learned from 2 Corinthians that he wrote another letter other than 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to the, to the, to the uh, church at Corinth that we don't have that church. So uh, that actually gives me hope that it's, we don't have, these writings are not in the Bible just because Paul wrote them. They're in the Bible because the Holy Spirit inspired these particular writings and there are other writings of Paul's that weren't inspired, and they're not in the Bible. And finally, we learn not to ignore God's call on your life in 4.17. Whatever call God has called you to do, He's called you to do something different than He's called me to do. But whatever He's called you to do, don't ignore it. Stay firm and do that. Follow God's call. Paul was fine being in prison because that was God's call. Preach the Gospel and he knew he was going to go to prison. God told him, you're going to do that. Stick true to God's call. I'm out of time. I just want to say, Colossians is such a fantastic book. If you haven't read it in a while, if you, are feeling, if you ever get to where you're feeling spiritually dry or spiritually distant from God, you're having a hard time, read Colossians. Because, man, it's got so many great truths about who God is and what he did for us that you can't help but to uh, encourage you and, and, uh, and help your spiritual walk. And as always, I pray that our lives reflect what the Word of God tells us to do. Jesus, thank you for the time we've got to spend together this morning. I thank you that we have several young people that are going to proclaim their belief in you this morning, shortly in our baptism. What a great thing and great opportunity that is. I thank you that we get the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper and to remember and proclaim your death until you come again this morning. Thank you for each person that's here. And I pray for them as I pray for myself that your word would help perfect me, help draw me closer and make me more like you. Draw us closer to you and make us more like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.